I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History, in episode 103, the restoration of Oak Hill, the back nine. Today on our show, we are joined by the famed golf course architect, Andrew Green, to discuss how he restored holes 10 through 18 at Oak Hill. Along that journey, I will share stories of Oak Hill's history, ranging from the Seneca Indians, a healing spring, the French invaders, and perhaps even a little golf history too. As a reminder, our previous episode covered the restoration and history of the front nine. So if you missed that show, perhaps hit pause and listen to episode 102 before this one. Now let's start off with a cold open as we dive into the restoration of the back nine of Oak Hill Country Club. Starting off on the second nine, hole number 10, Ross's hole was 421 yards, RTJ 432, and Andrew Green expanded to 429. In 1955, RTJ eliminated two bunkers, 140 yards off the teen area, elongated the hole by 10 yards, and moved and refigured Ross's greenside bunkers, as well as reshaped the green. Walk us through the changes on the 10th hole. Yeah, you know, there were some discussions about the four bunkers or the bunkers that were placed just off the tee on a number of golf holes. This is one where there were two located just at the beginning of the fairway. And I think our overall mindset with those bunkers really were that the East course is a pretty demanding test of golf and that it wasn't it didn't seem like an intelligent move to place more trouble for the players that are having enough trouble playing the golf course. And, you know, I, quite frankly, I, I struggled with it from a historical standpoint because I do see the values, the impressiveness, the, the excitement level of those kinds of features as you look down a golf hole. They, they how are it, how it helps frame the hole. Yes. But the, the, the realist, inside myself says it just doesn't make sense to pursue those so this is a set of bunkers that we didn't look to restore we just said hey we know time has changed we're going to stick with the main landing zone so we took the bunker on the left hand side and shoved it down the golf hole a little bit Uh, again topography in this part of the golf course dictated the placement of things Uh, there starts to become a floodplain at the bottom of the fairway and i just not it's not in my being to place things that can wash out uh, in the floodplain. So so we actually utilized hummocks down the right-hand side and long left to make a player think, but not create something the club would have an issue maintaining through the future. So uh, it'll be interesting here as well, as far as do players try to overpower the golf hole or do they lay back and uh, take a longer club into the green? The green sits just beautifully on this kind of uh, just a bit of an upland feel. And so 
the we widen the approach a little bit for the player, uh, especially the the average player. And then we eliminated a bunker back right and extended the green to create some new hole locations back there. And it's kind of the same thing I talked about on three. When we take these greens and you start to get extensions of the putting surface that extend beyond the the kind of typical back edge, meaning that if you think about a circle, okay, and you think about the back edge, as a golfer, you're never going to extend your golf shot beyond that arc of the back. But if it starts to have an appendage that goes beyond you're going to start trying to club yourself into that appendage and it brings trouble in the other directions into play. So there's a drop off in the back left that is really in play that wasn't so much in play before, because now if you're flag hunting hole locations on the right side and you miss it left, the ball is going to want to trundle off the green and down into a, a short grass area. So uh, that was a, a big thought on the 10th hole. And then there's a beautiful little subtle ridge in the front half of the green that, that was important to make sure that we took care of. A bit of history. As players tee off on the 10th hole, they'll be hitting their drives toward an early Native American campsite of the Seneca Indians. As Oak Hill's history tells us, the Seneca Indians were part of the ancient League of Iroquois, a group of five tribes organized in 1570. Some believe that the Iroquois Federation may have been the model of the Confederation of States, later to be known as the United States of America. There are two plaques on this hole celebrating the history of the League and the Seneca tribe. I mean, there's so much history with this property that has nothing to do with golf. (laughs) Things are going along. It's amazing. Hole number 11, Ross, 166 yards, RTJ, 192 Andrew Green, 260 yards. In 1955, the hole was lengthened by RTJ. The green was reshaped. RTJ added a pond for the 1956 U.S. Open and then removed it after the championship, and Allen's Creek was altered. Now, Andrew, lots of changes over the year, including a pond that seemed to last for a year. How long did it take you to convince members that you need to bring back the one-year pond? That's a joke. Yeah, that wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> no, that we'll talk about another famous pond in a, a few minutes. Um, yeah, I think this was really about making the golf hole in itself in, in an exciting and inspired manner. Uh, the original design had you know, a very unique kind of squarish front with a, a really cool back left edge. So trying to restore that left corner and the left hole location was hugely important. And there's a bit of a grade change that runs through the center of the green that makes it where distance control is very important on a, uh, this part three. The, the length of the hole that we ended up getting uh, going way back was just an opportunity where we had the space to pursue an option. And I'm, I'm interested to see how Kerry sets it up. I'm not sure if he'll play back there all four days or move the tee around. And uh, there's some certain value to, to having that flexibility. And then one of the big things we looked at doing was trying to get short grass to connect back to Allen's Creek and interconnect the golf hole in this beautiful bend to, to the creek that, that's always been there. Uh, obviously, it's been modified a few times. But uh, getting that short grass to lock in, it, it starts to create this thing where the other par threes on the golf course have uh, you know, some pretty unique topography. This one sits pretty flat. But it uh, it's, has a certain presence to it just because of the way the parts fit together. 
um, which, which I think has a, a certain power to it. And, uh, yeah, th- this starts a stretch of interesting golf holes where there can be some big scores and there can be some success. Let me ask you a question before I get to the history. It's an observation that just kind of hit me as I was looking through the old plans and how the course changes. There seems to be a trend in a lot of these renovations over the years from, you know, I don't know, Ross, Tillinghast, whatever, um, Seth Rayner, et cetera, where it's not a restoration process. Someone else comes in. But one of the things that seems to be lost, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, is, is, is it a maintenance issue, but, or is it something else? That a lot of these like original beautiful greens that were square and triangular and ob-shaped, and they become very rounded in these restora- renovations, I should say, of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Any glimpse into the thought process of why that might have happened? I know, you know restoration wasn't a thing back then, but I'm just curious... What what was going on? Do we know? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple factors. The first being that the ride-on triplex mower became kind of a limiting element of what kind of turning radius you could take. And the tighter that turning radius, the more stress it put on the turf grass and wear and tear and damage. And so I think there was a bit of a natural evolution due to that mower. And I mean, even today, we're trying to find ways to still utilize that equipment because manpower is at such a premium. But it, you know, in the face of design and interest, those corners and edges are so important to create golf holes that play differently every day. I talk all the time about playing golf into a circle green versus a green with a very interesting shape. It's like night and day different. It just is completely different. The other thing that I think is just a natural evolution is that the guy on the mower mowing the edge of the green, which I've done quite a bit in my life, you're trying not to scalp that edge. You're trying not to mow the green out. And, you know, you got a, a dumb kid like me, you know, 15, 16 years old, you're trying not to get yelled at, or you have, you know, somebody that, you know, how skilled is the guy on the mower? I mean, obviously they're very talented, but there's a level of imprecision yeah. That you have you, to if you miss an inch here or there over a period of 10 years, right, you lose shape. Let's say a tenth of an inch in 10 days is an inch. Yeah, there right? you go. I mean, right, right. Because you don't want to scalp the edge. So you see, oh, it's a little right. bit longer here. I'm just going to keep cutting that edge. That's, that's right. interesting. So a little history here. In 1968, Lee Trevino won the U.S. Open. And the 11th hole played a critical role in that victory. Trevino recorded three birdies and one par for the championship on this one hole. For a tournament, Trevino was only five under for the championship. So three under on one hole, five under overall. Hole 12, Ross, 363 yards. RTJ, 372. Andrew Green, 372 yards. In 1955, RTJ eliminated all of Ross's original bunkers and decreased the fairway width by half. In 1994, the service road, which once ran through the first one-fourth of the hole, was replaced by a decorative stone bridge. How did you take on the bridge? Was the bridge still there by the time you got there? And, and yeah, what did you do here? Yeah, the bridge, the T is actually on the right side of the bridge at the moment. So that starts to eliminate some of the, the need to try to restore anything there. Um, the width of this golf hole... It's like, this is a was a constant consideration, constant discussion, and 
there's so much tilt left to right for the player that trying to find a width that works for the everyday player creates strategy and interest, but doesn't invite uh, thoughtless swings by better players was something we talked about a lot. I mean, a lot, this one. And there's some significant tree removal that occurred that further impacted where the fairway landed and what other elements would make up the golf hole. What ended up really happening is there's a key bunker that was kind of relocated place and the left side, it's one of those bunkers that was way, way out there on Ross's plan in that 300 plus yard range. Putting that bunker back started to make the player think about how aggressively they play off the tee. Uh, it's a shortish par four for most long players. Then it was, okay, if, if the player has that to think about and then they're thinking about laying back, what is the consideration to lay back? If you're laying back, you really want a good angle into the green, which is from the right side of the fairway. So then we placed a bunker on the right side of the fairway that's about 50 yards short of the left one. And now it just starts to get in these positions where, you know, you have to make a dedicated swing with a dedicated thought of picking a line and a distance and executing. The uh, We had a number of discussions about trees that had been up the right-hand side of the golf hole for many years. Of all the tree discussions that we had, this hole had probably the most of, you know, what do we do? The topography is so good. This is playing back into one of those glaciated high points that uh, it was critical for me to see the golf hole. So we got rid of the trees and we added a hummock field and actually went back and added a couple more oh, last cool. year down the right-hand side. And then the green itself sits in such a beautiful angle. It's very narrow left to right, but very deep front to back. We actually extended the, the functional use of that green on the front and back ends to extend um, the, the kinds of shots you have to end in, in there. Why do I think that's valuable? I think it's critical when you have touch shots, meaning shots inside, let's say a nine or under, you know, great uh, caddy talks about playing the flute on the, uh, on your grip, right? You know, where are you gripping a, a wedge to try to hit it? You know, when you have this really long green and you're trying to control spin and you have a short club in your hand, I just think there's a great amount of value to that kind of golf shot. And uh, look, the guys playing in a couple weeks, they're amazing players. They can knock it stone cold. But being uphill, not quite seeing the, all of the flag and having that kind of depth, I think, is an important part of the game of golf. And uh, the 12th hole is a great example of that. That's awesome. So a little bit of history. Actually, this goes way back. This, uh, is this no, I, I guess I mentioned glaciers, so that's further back. 336 <laughs> years ago, in 1687, France was trying to make a claim to, of territories within what is now the United States. In July of 1687, the French crossed what is now Oak Hill Country Club to raise and burn the Seneca tribes on the land that is now near the river. Hole number 13, Ross, 574 yards, RTJ, 594, Andrew Green, 594. In 1955, RTJ removed Ross's original bunkers and added his own. The tee was elongated by 20 yards, and he reshaped the green slightly. Give us a little bit of, a, of how you attack the 13th. What, how did we go to restore that hole? 
Yeah, so, so let's start with the idea that we added a new back tee last year. So now it's over 600 yards, 625-ish. And this whole, you know, par five, it kind of, there's two pieces to the, the puzzle here. The first is that the tee shot has Allen's Creek that bisects uh, the primary landing zone from a kind of an extraordinarily long landing zone. The idea of the new back tee was to make the player think about a go, no go situation. And uh, my guess is, depending on the weather, temperature, ball flight, a number of players will stay short of the creek. There is a heroic aspect to carrying that water and getting in a position where you can go to this green in two. There is also a historic feel among the club, and I would tell you within, you know, some the the historic feeling of the club, I guess I should say, that this green for the longest time was well guarded as you weren't able to get home in two. I think John Daly maybe was the first to get home. And so there are a lot of conversations about how aggressive do we get with this? Um, the excitement of, uh, you know, challenging the water, right? The ability to carry and have the, the great benefit of being closer and able to get home in two versus forcing players to lay back. It was an interesting discussion, I guess. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the players attack it. I uh, also think it'll be interesting to see how Kerry Hag and the PGA potentially push the tee forward and have the guys, you know, more players apt to take on the trouble. So that's the first half. Uh, the second half is that the the landing zone had been incredibly narrow uh, on a second shot for a very long time. So much so that there was about a five-yard sweet spot to land without being impacted by bunkers or overhanging trees. We really worked to widen that out, um, obviously for the everyday player, but also for anyone playing the golf hole. And then the last part really was at the green. This is the picture I, I showed you earlier. Connor, that uh, the oldest picture we had is kind of, it was a bit of a pseudo punch bowl, meaning that it really set where it's set in a valley. And so it's surrounded on all sides by slope. And then how much short grass would push up that slope. And uh, the green has a bit of a thumbprint to it in the front, which makes it really interesting. And this green had a lot of slope, but when I inherited it, it had a tremendous amount of slope from back to front. So we softened some of that in the process. And the and in, in that same vein, this green was severely impacted by shade. So there were a number of trees that were removed to improve turf health that really protected the club's investment. And the famous Hill of Fame is off to the right-hand side. And we actually had to work through removal of a few of the Hill of Fame trees to ensure that the green would be healthy and sustainable. So you, you removed Robert Trent Jones Sr.'s tree? Uh, no comment. No, I don't <laughs> I, I don't know. So. I'm just, <laughs> I, know he had, I know he had a tree. I'm, it would yeah. just be funny if if you came in and did the restoration and it was one of the trees <laughs> that I think got we, removed. Uh, I think we made decisions based on what was right for the I green. I know. I'm just teasing and, uh, you. I'm just teasing you. No, um, but I think there's an important story to tell there where there was a level of commitment from the club. And even though there was political pressure to maintain every tree in this area, 
that there was a great realization that to protect the investment the club was making in new infrastructure, new turf, and a future that these decisions had to be made. And it's probably a good lesson for every club that, yes, there's magnificent trees on our golf courses that are beloved and great memories and they're gorgeous and magnificent. But at some point, there's an intersection of what's functional and what's feasible in those uh, those vertical elements. And you have to make smart I think decisions. you could look back at the original intent of the design. I, I'm sure many of those trees were not in Ross's view of what this course, how it should play. And I, I mean, obviously, I think you have to lean back or lean on the expertise of Donald Ross, who's the original designer of this course. You know, that's the best thing to do in my mind. That's the argument I always make is, how old is this tree? You know, when we were doing our restoration at Bel Air, I'm like, this tree is 30 years old. This course is 125 years old. This was not here. You know, it's a better course without it. But I understand, specifically on this hole with the Hill of Fame, I can see the pressures involved with, trying to restore the golf course to, you know, the best course it could be and balancing history and tradition of that specific part of the course. That, I'm sure that was, that was a very difficult process for both you and the club to make those decisions. It was, absolutely. Uh, the 13th hole, I'm going to get into Trevino again, is again where he differentiated himself from the field in the 1968 U.S. Open. Here he picked up 4.8 strokes on the field average, carding four pars, and the average score on the hole was 5.2. So again, he won it with a score of five under, and he preserved that score here. On hole number 14, Ross, 324 yards. RTJ, 323 yards. Andrew Green, 323 yards. I think it was the first one where we didn't see a big movement there one way or the other. Uh, in 1955, RTJ reshaped the green slightly and renovated Ross's greenside bunkers. He made an effort to completely reroute the hole into a dogleg by using the practice range to the west, but Oak Hill's board overruled him. I don't. Did you know that part? Yeah. I mean, amazing. <laughs> so walk through your restoration. I mean, did you turn it into a dogleg? No, no. <laughs> it's uh, a really cool it, hole, though, right? It's. I it's mean, for the pros, hole. this is going to be. You know, in theory, they're going to be looking at potentially trying to drive this hole. And I always find those holes to be fascinating. Yes. So it is a drivable uh, par four, certainly that opportunity. The green sits where it leans significantly to the player. So it helps arrest a longer golf shot. Um, there was a lot of work done to, to widen the stance of the golf hole off the tee and provide some variety. Um, we added a bunker up the left-hand side and another one up the right-hand side that were you know, the idea of when you start to lay back, making a few decisions, those decisions mainly being based on slope and sight lines. Uh, the further you push the ball down the golf hole, the little better view you have. And then how much upslope do you want to hit your golf shot into and then have to judge how the ball is going to react off a pretty severe uphill lie. And uh, the green itself just heavily guarded in the front by bunkers, keeping in a traditional kind of three bunkers across the way Ross had designed it. And then we worked to actually narrow, we narrowed the, the outer edges a little bit and elongated the green ever so slightly in the corners just to kind of better represent what Ross had envisioned. And um, 
to, to best fit this idea of potentially driving the, the putting surface. So we played the golf hole for, I don't know, two years or so and started to realize there were some potential improvements around the back of the green and a, I guess, a, a trying to find a balance point. And this will be very interesting and something I, I've been thinking about. The green itself, if you land the ball in the green, you can get the ball to stop. It is, you know, an amazing golf shot and should absolutely be rewarded with the chance of making um, an eagle. The if you miss, the misses are going to be quite interesting. If you miss it left substantially, it will hold up in some pretty heavy rough and you have a tricky uh, pitch. There's short grass now that borders the immediate left edge, kind of a roll off and in the back of the green that puts a higher premium on making sure the ball isn't thoughtlessly hit long, which we kind of thought was happening a bit after we we played it uh, a little and so I, i'm intrigued by that short grass how much that will actually get into a player's head and how much risk they're willing to take to to knock it on the green we really tried to find balance i guess the question will be you know did we yeah i mean it's tough i mean they they hit it so far and they have so much control nowadays right yes very so much so. let me let me ask you this on this hole so if you are in contention for the PGA Championship, you're playing the 14th hole, you're a couple strokes back, are you pulling out driver? You're putting your, and I'm putting you in the head of you know, some of the world's best players. And what are you thinking about on that tee shot? Like, where, where's the best miss for a tour pro? And, you know, what's the risk reward that they're going to have to weigh on this decision? Yeah, interesting. My thought, and I'm certainly not a tour pro. Just a uh, level below, and, I understand. Yeah, I've enjoyed spending <laughs> time with them. And, and the analytics that they're utilizing now is, are spectacular. But um, uh, my guess is leaving it in one of the greenside bunkers, they're feeling pretty confident of, of either getting up and down or making no worse than four. So that's certainly a decent miss. I think the long miss is going to be jail or major problems. I think... Uh, Previously, there'd been some rough there where you'd get your hands on the ball, you'd kind of see what you had to do, and the worst case is you're chunking and running it back towards the whole location with a, a decent chance of still making a three. Um, the short grass that we added around there, I think, makes that more demanding. So my guess is they'll pick the number for the front edge and try to hit it as close to that number as possible if you're going for it. From my stance, yes, if I'm trailing by two or less, um, on Sunday, I'm pulling driver probably here because the reality is this golf hole and the next are really 16. You still make um, a reasonable shot at, at birdie there, but 17 and 18 are bears. So this is a chance to to make up some ground. Yeah, that's fascinating. I just I love that aspect of how you're trying to put yourself, you know, in the minds of some of the greatest golfers out there in the world, obviously. Let's see here. So we are 200 years ago. We're going back 200 years ago. 200 years ago, this hole sat besides a Sulphur Spring health resort that was believed to have the healing powers of breathing and drinking and bathing in the sulfur water. That tradition may have extended back to the Native Americans who did the same thing a thousand years ago. Pretty remarkable. And I've been told 
on certain days when the wind's blowing right that you can still sometimes catch the faint whiff of sulfur. I don't know if you had that at all. Any experience there? I know the springs are gone. You don't, it's no longer near right. the hole. I wondered what that smell was, Connor. Right? Yeah, no kidding. That no, could have been some of the people you're working next to. <laughs> no. I wasn't there for the record. Uh, hole number 15. Ross, 125 yards. RTJ, 177. Andrew Green, 167 yards. In 1955, RTJ extended the hole 50 yards, and Ross's original bunkers were renovated. In 1976, George and Tom Fazio abandoned Ross's original green and created a new one to the right, foregoing all of Ross and RTJ's former elements. Ten years later, a wall was built on that pond to the right of the new green. So walk us through this, because, you know, obviously you're going back to the original. How did you go about taking that on? Yeah, the... Well, the reality was actually the original set right on the boundary with Aronicoit, um, uh, the other golf course on the other side of the, the, the property. And so putting the green back up on that location would cause a number of problems. Number one, it would potentially have golf balls leaving Oak Hills property onto another property, uh, which is primary concern. The other that any kind of gallery flow, any kind of visualization, any, any ability to actually see golf on this putting surface would be darn near impossible. So our intention was really to take the new alignment of the golf hole, which is well to the right of its original location and replicate the green concept as best we could. So what we end up with is a green that's fairly narrow left to right, fairly deep front to back. Uh, and then it has contouring that breaks the green into multiple pieces. So if you kind of think about it as multiple greens in one, that's kind of the mindset. There's a ridge that dominates the back center of the green and kind of breaks the right and left halves of the back, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the green. And then there's a, a front right hole location that sits a little lower and kind of an upper left hole location. And my thoughts with this is we talked a little bit about the third at Wanamoisit which is one of the great short par threes in golf, uh, Donald Ross design. And how do we make the player stand over the golf shot with a level of confidence of having a wedge or nine iron or some kind of short club in your hand? And you stand over the ball and you are supremely confident with this club in your hand and the ball on a peg that you can hit the ball within, say, a flag stick or so. You can really attack a hole. But as you're standing over the ball, you realize you don't want to hit it thin. You don't want to hit it fat. You don't want to push it. You don't want to pull it. You, you, you cannot miss at all. And what does that cause the player, the, the, that balance of, of mental fortitude? Especially and, in a major, right? And a, Coming yeah. down the stretch. So what I think you're going to see there, you're going to see some really amazing golf shots that are hit close. You might see a hole in one or two depending on the whole location um, and you maybe see a few players even potentially ping pong the ball across the green. The left bunker is severely deep. It is one of the deepest on the golf course. Um, and the right side is now shaved down with short grass where you miss it just a little bit. The ball releases down into a, a fairway area. And so it is this, you know, Anytime we can get a player to have a little second thought and still feel the 
empowered to make an aggressive swing and take an aggressive line of play. You know, we feel like that's exciting. That's what we want. And then it's really up to them to execute. And if they miss, how do you recover? And where do those balance points lie? And I think that's what makes a great short par three. And I, I hope that's what we see in a couple of weeks. Well, to your point, uh, the history on this hole, now it's going to play a little different than it has in the past, but this hole has a history of breaking and making its potential winners. In the 1956 U.S. Open, Ted Kroll had a chance to win the Open if he just finished par, 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 par. Instead, Kroll bogeyed the 15th, tripled the 16th, and bogeyed the 17th. On the other hand, Jack Nicklaus, in his final practice round before the 1980 PGA Championship, got a hole-in-one on 15 and ended up winning the PGA Championship by seven strokes. So we got a little bit of both. You can go ping-pong or you can get the hole-in-one, and who knows? The person who makes the hole-in-one could win the championship, and the one who unfortunately goes ping-pong around the green could potentially lose it. Uh, hole number 16. We're getting into a really good stretch, a really tough stretch. Uh, we have Ross, 433 holes, RTJ, 439, and Green, 478 yards. In 1955, RTJ removed or renovated all of Ross's original bunkers. He reshaped the green, and the fairway width was massively narrowed from Ross's time by maturing trees. How did you go about taking on the 16th? We're in the final three holes. The pressure's building up. What do you do? Yeah, so there were a number of discussions here about how to potentially add length. Um there's a sweet spot in the fairway itself just because of the natural grade that if you land the ball, it wants to propel forward, you know, dozens of yards. So it effectively makes the golf hole shorter with the modern player utilizing the technology and the advances in the golf ball and in the golfer. So we looked to push the tees back as much as we could. There was a significant amount of dirt in that location that allowed us to work it backwards and still create a semblance of a natural landform to rest that that tee on. So that's where we gained a lot of distance uh, was at the tee. In the fairway itself, uh, there was a bunker. This is another place there was a bunker Ross had down the right-hand side that was at that 300 plus or minus mark that we restored and or restored its general design intent, and it worked perfectly for the modern player. So there's two bunkers down the right-hand side that you really have to think about. And you want to skirt those to get the most benefit out of the slope of the fairway to push the ball forward. Um, So there are a a number of of considerations there. I think we added a couple hummocks down the left side last year just to start to balance misses down the left-hand side. Um, And there's going to be some rough there that also will, will certainly make you think. At the green itself, the green is spectacular. It sits, it oozes out of this uh, kind of bluff, and it, it's one of my favorites on the golf course. Very subtle, very hard to putt, and uh, a really cool bunker up the right-hand side of that. And then we took short grass out behind an approach bunker and off the left-hand side and a little bit out of the back. That short grass, I think, will be really interesting as far as what golf balls end up in the short grass, what balls are potentially repelled by the grass and pushed into rough a little further from the putting surface. And then how do players recover from those different positions? Does the short grass allow you to recover even out of the rough in creative ways versus if you're in the short grass to the green, you know, 
what are the different ways that you pull clubs or use your skill level to recover? Excited to see how they utilize that. Um, and I, I just think this is a prototypical Donald Ross tough par four, um, you know, really just execute and you can be successful. But if you get a little off offline, uh, you have some trouble. Perfect. All right, let's roll into hole 17. We have Ross 451 yards, RTJ 458, and I have you at 501 yards. In 1955, RTJ planted trees down the right side of the fairway, added new bunkers, and removed Ross's original bunkers. In 1976, George and Tom Fazio added two bunkers to the right of the green. How did you go about looking at this hole? I mean, we're down the last two holes. They're critical make or break holes. The championship will be on the line. How did you take on this part of the restoration? Yeah, so 17 is an interesting dynamic because it plays as a par five for the members. And so it's one of those golf holes where it needs to be a good four and a good five. Yeah, and that tough. Yeah, tough really balance. Hard. That can be very hard. So to balance it from a member standpoint, the big thing we looked at doing was trying to keep the tee shot where it wasn't overly complicated. It plays uphill to a beautiful rise. And as you crest the hill, you start to see the west course off to the player's left. And I felt like that rise was enough for most of the players at the club to be penalty enough or not penalty enough, but thoughtful enough uh, off the tee to, you know, just the fact of trying to get to that high point was enough challenge for the better player. We actually looked at installing some hummocks in the down the left hand side beyond the high point that uh, just kind of keep a player in check of of kind of overpowering it, just hitting it long and left and not caring where the ball ends up and then figuring out what to do from there. So just a little thing to keep you honest. And then the second half of the golf hole, there's two kind of crossing bunkers that were Ross originals that pinch in the landing zone and make for a very nice par five dynamic as far as a layup um, second and third shots. But for the players here in a couple weeks at the PGA championship, it's really about the green and that complex. The bunker that was installed on the right hand side, we actually uh, eliminated that and put a significant hummock field, the most severe hummocks on the entire property. Uh, the process there. Yeah. Um, it's on a high point. It's in an interesting position where sand doesn't make sense. The original Ross design had mounding that oozed out of the green on that front right. Um, I think the the dynamic with the aggressiveness of that was just to make sure we had the players full attention uh, coming down the stretch. And then as a par five, striking some balance for the everyday player of also having you know, a golf hole that's fairly well laid out in front of you, the second half of it, you certainly see everything out in front of you um, to, to make you think. And um, in my mind, hummocks are, you know, these broken mounds in rough grass can be in fairway, but they're a great equalizer. The average player typically takes out some sort of wedge and can figure out a way to get the club on the ball and the ball on the green. The better player tends to overthink their stance, their lie, weight transfer, all these different things. And so I love utilizing them in, in these creative ways. Uh, this green is another favorite of mine. It has an amazing little trough in it that runs kind of in the front half. That's really cool. 
and you have to pay attention to how a ball not only lands on the green, but also then how you traverse it with a with a putt. Uh, excited about there's a really cool whole location front right. We'll see if they go after it. That really makes the hummocks part of the the, the equation. And uh, front hole locations aren't utilized as much as I'd like to see them in golf in general. Um, so, yeah, excited about this one. Let me ask you about the hummocks. Do, do we know how they'll be grown for the PGA Championship? Is it going to be like a long, wispy kind of grass? Is it thick grass? Is it short? Like, do we know how the PGA Championship is going to attack those? I believe the intention is to just have it as regular primary rough. So, in a couple inches of... Um, Tall fescue, uh, not tall like wispy, but the name, the species, tall fescue. Uh, so I, I think you know, you'll be able to find the ball, no problem, be able to get club on the ball. It'll be judging how much it's settled down in that material. And then what kind of your feet, is it below your feet? Are you on a, yeah, it, it's, it's a terrific element to golf, isn't it? It is. I love it. And it also, it, it brings in a different element than the player faces on 18. So a little history here. The 17th sealed the fate of Ben Hogan's attempt to win his fifth U.S. Open in the 1956 U.S. Open. Hogan needed to finish one under over the last two holes to win the championship or finish even par to tie to move into an 18-hole playoff. Here on the 71st hole, Hogan stood over a four-footer for par with history in the balance. His stroke was met with a groan as he lipped out and carted a bogey. He would par the 72nd hole and finish in second place, never attaining his fifth U.S. Open. Our last hole, hole number 18, Ross, 423 holes, RTJ, 440 holes, Andrew Green, 492 holes. All of Ross bunkers were removed in 1955 by RTJ. RTJ added new bunkers, including two bunkers in the front and back of the green. In 1976, Tom and George Fazio added a new back tee, eliminated Ross's original green, and created a new green 30 yards forward of the new one. How do you tack that? I mean, do you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the last hole. It's mayhem. You know, history is in the balance. It's a critical hole. Yeah, I think we spent a couple months discussing the merits of shifting the green back to Ross's original location. There... There was a, a, enough real estate to potentially do that. The, the conversation revolved around how much space do we need to leave for build out, you know, for grandstands for a major championship? Um, is that a primary concern? I think the realization from that part of the discussion was that it certainly is nice to have that space that the club could utilize for a m- multiple purposes. And then obviously including major championship build out. The other thought was that having the green on this precipice of this steep edge adds a layer of drama and interest that kind of has defined at least the modern Oak Hill. You know, people watching golf there uh, recognize that the 18th hole has this dramatic uphill approach, you know, very steep slope up to that green so we landed on keeping the green at least in that general location not shifting it back uh, to an original position and so then the discussion revolved around how do we make the green best represent something ross would do and we ended up with a green where we extended it quite a bit 
back and to the right. And I've talked about it multiple times where greens of differing dimensions it makes a player think of attacking different holes in different ways. And by extending it back and right, it brings trouble right and long more into play than it would have otherwise. And it still leaves us an opportunity to have front hole locations that have that very steep front as part of the equation. So all of these things registering in the player's mind as they're standing over, you know, one of the most probably the most important shot of the, the event. Um, so the green, I think, just really feels much more in keeping with, you know, Ross design than uh, the previous version. And the, their bunkers kind of stair-stepped into the landscape there. But, uh, you know, we talked about a number of times today that playing Oak Hill in a successful manner will depend on a couple of things. One is driving your golf ball well, getting it into positions where you aren't having to make huge sacrifices in how you'd like to attack the golf hole. And then taking the, the proper level of risk on attacking the day's hole location and executing and again, talking about the way the modern professional player uses the information going through their head would blow your mind. I mean, I've been <laughs> shocked sure. by how, you know, they're, they have kind of a formula in their head as they're playing golf shots that they know using that formula, when to pull the trigger, right? When to be aggressive and when not to be. And I always think it's interesting that major championships tend to reveal times when those players sometimes go against that information. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Push the, the analytics. Right. So when you need a shot, can you execute that shot? Or do you say, my numbers tell me I can't execute it, so I'm not even going to try. And when, when the big prize is on the table, it will be quite interesting to see how much they challenge. And and I love Oak Hill and the fact that really, since we've been talking the, the second half of our discussion, there are many golf holes where you can try to overpower it or you can try to play quote unquote smart and uh, we'll, we'll see what decisions they make. History um, could be in the balance, right? It could be. It's pretty cool to think about. That's for sure. I mean, I can't even imagine the the pride you must have, you know, knowing that this golf course is going to be, you know, challenging the best players in the game. And it's just, it's a bear. Like I, I look through my historical notes on Oak Hill and I think about my own game. I'm like, gosh, I don't think I'm going to get any pars. <laughs> like it seems like there, it doesn't seem to be a 18th hardest on my list of notes. There doesn't seem to be the seventh, like all of them seem to be like, this was the hardest hole. This was the second hardest hole. This was the fifth hardest hole. I haven't found any 16th hardest holes. And to that point, to jump into the history, uh, here's a, a little bit of both, right? So in 1968 US Open, the club deemed the hole to be too easy. However, in the 1980 PGA Championship, it played the second most difficult. I mean, that just tells you the swing and how that plays. And uh, if I were going to end it, I've got to go with modern history here. There's zero doubt that one of the most famous shots in major championship history occurred on this very hole. Uh, McKeel came into the 72nd hole with a one-stroke lead after bogeying the 71st hole, playing with Chad Campbell, who was one stroke back. McKeel was left with 174 yards and hit his seven iron to within inches of the hole to seal his one and only major championship victory. Now, I would argue... 
had the shot been hit by the name of Hogan, Nicholas, or Woods, it would undoubtedly be considered one of the greatest shots in golf history. And today, I honestly think it's considered one of the most underrated shots in golf history. If you change the name, it's considered the greatest shot in my mind. I think it's one of the I think it's one of the top three greatest shots in major championship history, and it doesn't get enough credit because it's Sean McKeel and he won one major. Amazing. Yeah, the pressure he had to be feeling standing over that ball. He just bogeyed the prior one, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, to to try to at least ease. Uh, I know Sean's been out there lately, but uh, you know we tried to keep that whole location intact. Love it as best mm-hmm. we could. You know the green shapes changed. The green, the, the dynamics of the green have changed, but that exact location, left to right, front to back, is still there. That's so cool. I mean, I, I honestly think it's one of the greatest shots ever. Sorry, right, I have two more questions for you, and sure. they're really for one is for someone who's going to be on the property. And one is going to be someone who's sitting at home. So if someone is attending the 2023 PGA Championship, what, let, maybe give us a couple holes, maybe two, three holes, would you set up and watch the players play? If there were a couple holes that you say, boy, this is going to be really interesting. Some are going to take on a challenge. Some are not. This one's going to be tough. What two or three holes might you say, set up and watch here? I got to yeah, think could, double trouble has to be one of them, right? Uh, yeah, the, there's going to be some, I'm not sure exactly how the build out is going to, I've seen some images, but I'm trying to reflect in my head. So some of the sight lines that I, I know without, you know, structures and hospitality and things may be impacted, but I would certainly spend some time, uh, number two, number three, and number 12. I think there's some really good golf viewing in that space. If there's an ability to park yourself behind the 12th green, you should be able to watch golf on 3, 12, and the tee shot on 13, potentially. Um, again, I just don't know where they're going to allow spectators and, and what the sight lines are going to be. Um, yeah, double trouble, uh, certainly one over on uh, six. I think the Hill think- of Fame to see if they challenge the Allen's Creek. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting one. Uh, 14 is great off the tee up and around the green, the, the green, so elevated, it, it's tough to see people putting there. So that one, 14's a great one to watch for sure. Um, and then obviously, you know, um, uh, being there for the 18th hole, uh, if you can, if you can get there, I think there's a, there's a lot of drama there just in, it's a difficult tee shot balls working left to right. And then having to really strike a good second shot to be successful, that, that one's uh that one will be good. All right. And then for the uh viewer at home, what two holes do you think will define the championship? So I, I probably eighteen, obviously, because it's so difficult. But if there were two holes within the golf course that like Trevino uh being, you know, four under or three under for the week on one hole. Is there one hole that stands out to you that says, wow, this is going to separate the field. That's kind of what I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've seen for a long time that par fives tend to define how a player plays an event, right? If they're able to use their power to their benefit and and make good scores on the par fives. And then I would say the, the inverse is also true that it, it's certainly been, Everything we've been talking about this a lot with uh, the upcoming work at East Lake, 
um, a number of different projects interacting with the PGA Tour and these these major championship organizations that the par threes tend to separate. Uh, you know, the par threes tend to play the most over par and the par fives the most under par. And, you know, I, I feel like that's going to be potentially the case at Oak Hill. I guess my mind was kind of working through if I if I tee off in the morning and I'm in contention, whether it be Saturday or Sunday, and what is my mental fortitude not to let the train come off the tracks? Like, where would that potentially happen and how do I buoy myself? And I think that stretch of how players play that three, three through six may be a kind of unknown section of the golf course that can generate some really good scores and potentially some trouble. And I, I kind of get a sense that that stretch will help define who wins the tournament. If they can play those holes and score well, there's some opportunities to score, but there's also some opportunities to let the wheels come off. Uh, maybe that's the stretch. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope to have you on again. I, I really appreciate the knowledge you shared with all of us, and I hope this creates some viewing pleasure for the folks that are watching the 2023 PGA Championship. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation. Sorry if I nerded out uh, oh, too that's much. All right. No, I think that's thing. what we're looking for. Quite frankly, I mean, the fact that we got through talking about holes four and five without having a stroke <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, right. it's kind of a miracle because you're like which four are you talking about the first four or the old four so yeah thank you so much it was so much fun thank you appreciate it very much the 2023 pga championship at oak hill will be the 11th major championship held at the club counting amateur and senior majors however it'll be the first time since the 1949 u.s amateur that donald ross's design will be the highlight of the venue by cataloging the design changes made by Robert Trent Jones Sr. and George and Tom Fazio between the 1950s and 1980s, I hope you all can see how easily a Golden Age design can be lost. Prior to Andrew Green's restoration, Ross's presence was all but as faint as the ghost of Wild Bill Hickok. But thanks to Green, Ross's shining gem in New York will be one of the great highlights of the 2023 PGA Championship. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>